You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, these, are, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm bad. Analytics don't work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a baller. He's a playmaker and a shot smaller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all he does is win. Hello and welcome. This is Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about the week in sports. It used to be about the week in sports narratives, but uh, we cut that from the no, script, it, was, right? it became too hollow of a word, Yeah, narratives. it's just too hollow. We can't use it. Anyway, uh, I am Neil Payne. I'm a sports writer and editor here at 538. Our usual host, Chad Matlin, is away on family business, so I'm hosting. And the voice that you just heard was Kate Fagan, an ESPNW columnist and our official Boulder Bureau chief in charge of ongoing Colorado football coverage. What is that acronym? Uh, you know, I haven't actually spelled that out. I should have made it a backronym. I should have made it a backronym to something uh, interesting. But uh, hi, Neil. Hey, how's it going, Kate? Life is good. You're uh, you're contractually obliged to say hi to whoever the host is, right? I don't know when that started, but in my head, the show has not begun or ended until I say hi. Oh, so to you, it doesn't begin when Skip Bayless starts rapping or whatever it is. That's that like the warm-up tape doing. that plays. Okay. And then these are the starting lineup introductions. Oh, wow. Okay. Can we, uh, it, w- it would be nice if we also could get like uh, that Chicago Bulls Strobe theme lighting. kind of, yeah, going, you know, get introed. Uh, but uh, just a word about Colorado. Uh, your Buffaloes are, are playing in a bowl, right? They're playing in a very, very important bowl game, perhaps <laughs> below the most important bowl games. But, 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 but they're playing the Oklahoma State Cowboys. Right, it's a good game. It's a it's a good it's the it's Alamo, Alamo Bowl. It's the Alamo Bowl. They probably have some great gifts in the hospitality suite. <laughs> so that's that's what you're thinking about. Yes, can, I'm thinking about the swag that they will collect. Can you get in on that as no. a uh, former oh I an, could. an emeritus athlete? I mean, w- when I say I could, I mean it wouldn't be an NCAA violation, but I don't think that they will give it to me. <laughs> oh, I don't know why NCAA violation popped into my head. But. You're you're still in that non emeritus mode, I think. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I'm still in that student athlete mode. <laughs> Right, yeah. Uh, so anyway, on today's show, uh, we got a lot of things to talk about. The sports are really cooking at this time of year. Uh, the NFL playoff picture is coming into greater focus with two weeks left in the regular season. So we'll be joined by ESPN the Magazine's Mina Kimes to talk about the teams on the playoff bubble. And we'll also debate dark horse teams for the playoffs and come up with uh, an interesting nickname for those teams. Then on to the NBA. The Minnesota Timberwolves are loaded with young talent as much as any team in basketball. So why can't they win ball games? And why do the stats hate their leading scorer, Andrew Wiggins, so much? And then finally, we'll discuss this past weekend's MLS Cup in which the Seattle Sounders defeated Toronto FC on penalties to win their first championship. Stephen Goff of the Washington Post will join us to talk about the match and talk about why ties are so prevalent in American soccer. And then, of course, we'll have our significant digit, a telling number from the week in sports. Let's go to the show. There are only a few weeks to go in the NFL's regular season, and the battle for the postseason is heating up. And our first guest, Mina Kimes, is here to talk about that and more. Welcome to the show, Mina. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's a, it's a second appearance on Hot Takedown. Uh, one, one of the few uh, to make that coveted second appearance. <laughs> yeah, I think the last time was we were talking about whether or not Von Miller would sign the contract. And then I think he signed it maybe the second I left your office. Right, so, right uh, exactly. We, we, uh, the, the, did you predict that he would? <laughs> yes, okay, so good. I was vindicated, yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. If all, if all of our guests could be that uh, prescient, we would be uh, zooming up the ratings. Uh, so... Let's just jump right in and talk about the the playoffs. So only one team, the Dallas Cowboys, has punched its ticket to the playoffs officially. But many teams are pretty secure. All eight division leaders right now have a 74% chance or greater of making the playoffs according to 538's playoff model. And that's the first time since 2009 that all eight division leaders had that high of a percentage after 14 weeks. And just to run down those teams, you got Seattle and New England at greater than 99 percent chance to win their divisions. Dallas at 95 percent chance of, ma- of winning the division. They're already assured, like we said, of making the playoffs. You also have Kansas City and Pittsburgh at 82 and 83 percent of winning their divisions. Also very high playoff odds there. 
And then even Detroit, Houston, and Atlanta are all between 74 and 76% of making the playoffs. So uh, one of my questions there is, is this an unusually secure and kind of balanced group of top contenders if you look at the division leaders at this stage of a season right now? I think it is, which is surprising because, as you guys have known from paying attention to the NFL, there are no real dominant teams, except for maybe the Patriots at this point after last night's beatdown and Dallas. But Otherwise, it's kind of a mess in terms of the actual abilities of these teams based on you know efficiency and football outsiders DVO ratings. So the fact that so many teams have kind of separated themselves from the pack is really interesting. In looking at the numbers for this kind of mass of teams with, I think a lot of people feel like New England and Dallas maybe separating themselves a little bit in terms of, okay, those are two teams you'd say are like legitimate contenders. And then you've got a mess of teams where you're, I think you can poke holes in whether or not you think they're legitimate. Like as a Giants fan, I'm I will happily raise my hand and say it's a nine and four team that could that I'm not really sure isn't five hundred. Oh, you we'll know? talk about the Giants okay, later. Okay. <laughs> so but one I'm wondering because and, and Neil, maybe and, and maybe Mina, you too this question is for like when we've done stat schools and we've we talk about baseball and we talk about run differential and, and we talk about that's a predictor of how maybe lucky a team is and how many you know wins they should have versus how many te- wins they have. The one team that jumped out to me in the NFL as a team that maybe is skiing you know over its tips a little bit is the Detroit Lions when I look at like their point differential. But I could be wrong in how predictive and and how. Um, insightful of a factor point differential is for the Detroit Lions. Wow, look at you, Kate, uh, uh, learning from stat schools of old, right, so, I think. But now, but sometimes, I, Mina, you, 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 you maybe get to know this the more you do this podcast. Sometimes I feel like I've get gleaned insight into like a stat and I then apply it in a different sport and may, perhaps it doesn't have the same like insightful no, power. No, you're right. You're right. Point differential is definitely predictive. It's something we look at to see which teams are going to be less good next year. That and I think their performance in close games are two of the factors we look at with football a lot to see if a team is, I think you said, skiing over their tips, right? Um, But yeah, uh, Detroit is a good example. Another team that I think is, to no one's surprise, not very good is Houston, who will likely make it to the playoffs thanks to their division. (laughs) Right. Right, yeah. So so much of this also comes down to what division you are in and what kind of luck of the draw you had in that. And then you have a team... You know, like, uh, if you, if you look at the AFC West, one of those teams at the top of that is going to be, you know, on the outside looking in, Denver, the defending champs only have a 52% chance of making the playoffs right now, according to the 538 model. And some of that is, yeah, they haven't played as well in the past few weeks as we're kind of accustomed to seeing Denver play. But then at the same time, you also have Kansas City kind of going on their customary late season hot streak, it seems like. And then the real kind of wildcard that I don't think any of us saw coming going into the season is Oakland sort of inserting themselves into the mix and staying there and actually being a contender. So one of my questions was going to be about, of all the teams that are sort of in that mix, which one do we feel most secure about uh, their playoff status, not just in terms of making the playoffs, but maybe what they can do once they get into the playoffs and and go further uh, there? From the mess, you mean teams out of the mess? Yes, aforementioned. I I like the word mess. The muck. These teams. I think of like when other rats get all knotted up and form. They call that a rat king, right? When they all (laughs) tie together. That's how I see the NFL right now. A team that I really like. Who is the rat king? In that rat cluster is um, Pittsburgh, and the reason I think that they have a better shot maybe than some of the other teams of advancing deep into the playoffs is that they're actually quite balanced. You know, I mentioned earlier that Football Outsiders stats have shown that actually there's no good teams. There are also no balanced teams in the NFL right now. Either you have a great quarterback and a bad defense like Oakland, Atlanta, or you have a terrible quarterback and a good defense like um, Houston or Kansas City. Pittsburgh actually has both, which is why I could see them going a lot farther than people expect. Uh, There's like a a dark horse team that you're starting to hear more and more like analysts talk about. And that's Tampa Bay. A lot of like, you know, Hermed words and the other of like the NFL guys uh, on our neck on our network. A lot are like, look, we like got to keep an eye out for Tampa Bay, especially because even though their defense was performing really poorly earlier in the year over the last, whatever it's been, I mean, uh, near like five to six games, those numbers have been really, really strong. So I'm wondering, like, is there something that's not showing up in, like, the actual 538 predictive numbers? Because you've got Tampa Bay, you know, 
5.81 point differential. Like everything's showing me that they're mediocre. And yet is, is it not picking up on like perhaps an upswing over the last couple of weeks that's telling us something else for those of us who are tuning into the games? I think Tampa Bay is one of those rare teams that actually just is getting better as the season goes on. And a big part of that is, you know, you mentioned the defense. It's also Jameis Winston, who is extremely inaccurate, as has been his kind of customary uh, issue over the last few seasons during the first half of the season and suddenly become a lot more accurate. I think through the first four games, he threw eight interceptions and then through the last eight, he's thrown four. So he is becoming a better quarterback this season, and that's allowing them, I think, to knock on the door of the playoffs. Yeah, and if you look at uh, what we have here, our ELO rating, which just measures, you know, basically how good you are and how well we think you'll continue to play, uh, 1,500 is about average. And if you dip down too low, near 1,400, you start getting into the territory of kind of a bad team or, or a sub-mediocre team. And as recently as week nine, Tampa Bay had a 1409. ELO rating, and uh, right now they're at 1528. So they're one of the teams that has gained the most, or perhaps the most, of any team in the NFL over the last five or so weeks, and that's something that maybe the season-long stats aren't going to pick up on. Uh, and Kate, you know, speaking of teams that have a tendency to maybe go on runs at the end of the season and, and carry that into the going. playoffs, you, you uh, I, I know you want to talk about your New York <laughs> Giants, and so is, is that a team that we should be kind of on the on the lookout for another one of these runs that they seem to just kind of generate out of what appears to be thin air if you look at the early season numbers. The only reason I'm bullish on the Giants is other than your Homer right fandom. the only and and again you could probably see that this opinion I'm about to give you is laced with homerism to begin <laughs> with but the reason I am bullish on them more than really I have a legitimate right to be given the way they've played over the first 13 games of the season is that in the previous two Super Bowl winning years, there was some facet of the Giants that got significantly better throughout the year. Like in 2007, like their secondary in the first four or five games was just so porous. And then by the playoffs, they were at least doing a very like admirable job in the secondary, enough to allow the other weapons that we had to take over. Anyway, you get it. The one that I can point to this time, I actually have more faith in, and that's Eli Manning himself. Like Eli Manning himself is one reason why the offense has struggled in so many games this year and like his decision-making at certain times. So if you're telling me the only thing I need an uptick on isn't something really substantial, like I need the, you know, the linebacking core to figure it out, like, if all I'm asking for is Eli Manning to rise to the occasion, I do have proof of that. And that's the one reason why I feel like maybe the Giants are actually going to be a force in the playoffs is because of Eli, because he's been so poor. But I don't know if I'm – I could be doing like Judah, Ninja, Warrior, like <laughs> Giant fan think. No, I love Eli Believers. Um, he has not looked great, which is worrisome. But we have seen, you know, at very, quite recently, teams with elite defenses who have carried diminished quarterbacks deep into the playoffs. And right now, it looks like you guys have an elite defense. Um, a few weeks ago, I was talking with Bill Barnwell, our colleague, about the Giants and citing some of their stats. They were first in, you know, tackles, interceptions. And he pointed out a lot of them were volume stats or counting stats because they had been on the field so much. But now you see the Giants, actually, their defense verging up and rate stats, like their down defense and red zone defense, and they're in the top five in all of these groups, which suggests that they really are one of the best defenses in the NFL. I do think we're all going to need to pick our Rat King, though. Right, well... Because we had Mina pick her Rat King in the Pittsburgh Steelers, so... I Neil, I'm going to need your rat. Is this what we're calling it, Rat King? Yeah, I guess we're going to say, call this our Rat Kings. Um, and as recently as maybe going into this week, I probably would have said Seattle uh, as the Rat King just based on you know what we've seen of them over the years, maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt, and also you know what we know that they're capable of. Uh, but I got to say that that feeling uh, is is a little bit shaken after seeing what Green Bay did to them. And so in some ways, the obvious Rat King if we're including the Patriots in this group, are is New England? No, 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 no. We, we, oh, were they not? We in the eliminated rat like New England in the AFC and Dallas. Oh, those you are need the to two. Help me out here. Not yeah. Dallas, we're looking for the, the, the rat who rises from the mass of 
rats whose tails are tied. Okay, together. so we're separating <laughs> out a. Uh, so this a is almost like, like rat, a cat. This is the rat prince, then I guess. Yes, this yes, is, the rat prince. The rat. <laughs> what what a children's story that is, by the way. The rat prince. I used to. My mom used to read that to me all the time. So uh, I, uh, I, if I have to pick an intriguing team and maybe dip into the rat morass uh, a bit. I'm going to say Atlanta. I, I think Atlanta's an interesting team. They are on track, at least according to our projections, to have the third best point differential, going back to that stat, of any team in the NFL uh, at the end of the season. And, you know, they've had their moments where they've looked up and down for sure. Uh, but that is an interesting team. Matt Ryan is once again having one of the best seasons of any quarterback in the NFL. And when he has that type of season, Atlanta seems to kind of fall where he leads I always find myself wanting to be conservative and picking a team to be the rat prince like a Seattle this comes up often then Kate <laughs> the this rat co- prince contest <laughs> well the more you go around the there. horn the more you realize you, you're asked these types of questions <laughs> but not framed in like pick your rat prince okay um <laughs> I find myself wanting to be conservative and saying like Seattle or Denver and then just leaning on history because history yeah. seems to be a, a, a sturdy entity to lean on. But really, if I'm going from having watched the NFL this year, like I think Kansas City looks awesome. And I, I am deterred from picking Kansas City because I can't lean on history. And it's so easy to just say, well, Kansas City is going to underperform in the postseason and, you know, quarterback play isn't going to help them. But if you just go by how they've played this year, like Kansas City looks like a team that can do damage. And Alex Smith does not look like historic Alex Smith. All of a sudden, he is throwing deep passes. It's it's so mind-blowing to watch. It's like when you know the robots in Westworld see something and it doesn't even register, and they say, that doesn't look like anything to me. That's how I feel when Alex Smith throws a deep pass. <laughs> they see it a picture of somebody like in front of Times Square, and they're like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. Like It's just so perplexing to see him do that over the last couple of games. I don't know if it's sustainable, but if it is, combined with their very aggressive ball-hawking defense, that's a dangerous threat. Well, maybe Alex Smith also knows that the Rat Prince mantle is on the line, and that's why he's uh, decided to throw more deep. Extra motivation. Right. Uh, So I think we're going to leave it there. But uh, thanks again, Mina, for being on the show and being our uh, resident NFL expert. No problem. Go Rats. This week's sponsor is Blue Apron. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. You can choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. And recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. Customize your recipes each week based on your own preferences. Some upcoming meals could be roasted pork and braised cabbage with barley and glazed apples or Thai green coconut curry with sweet potato and jasmine rice. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Want to try it? Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com takedown. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash takedown. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. With a 6-18 and 18 record as of this taping on Tuesday afternoon, the Minnesota Timberwolves are tied for the worst record in the Western Conference. Even though their starting lineup consists of a number 21 overall pick, a number 13 pick, a number 5, and two number 1 overall picks – all age 27 or younger. And perhaps the biggest star out of all of those is their leading scorer, Andrew Wiggins, a rookie of the year in the past who's scoring 22 points a game. But a deeper look at his advanced stats reveals a disconnect between his athleticism and scoring and his measurable contributions to the T-Wolves. We had a couple of stories over the past few weeks, one by Ben Dietrich of The Ringer and one by a professional sports gambler and basketball scout named Dean Demacus that talked about Wiggins almost in the language of him being a bust. Uh, And this is a really interesting story just about the connection between stats and the eye test. Oh, sorry, not the eye test, the Mm -hmm. The visceral view. The squint, yes. Uh, What did did squint stand for? Subjective quality index never tested. Yes, the squint 
uh, metric that we came up with, uh, and, and for new listeners, we asked uh, our, our listeners to send in ideas about a, a word that we could use to replace the tired old phrase, I test, that we felt like had lost its meaning. I do believe that I had more objection to the phrase, the I test, than the majority <laughs> of sports consumers out there. But nonetheless, we have a replacement. Right. So we're going with the squint. Uh, it is a backronym or perhaps uh, just a normal acronym at this point. And let me repeat, subjective quality index never tested. Right. Uh, and and in terms of Andrew Wiggins, I think this is a great intro story that we can use to kind of discuss the, the way in which Squint applies to sports in the era of advanced stats. So first of all, Kate, I wanted to pose the question. Is Andrew Wiggins a bust as Dean DeMacca said? It's, it's too soon to say, right? I guess my first reaction is to wonder how much information we've actually gathered on him and how much historical perspective we have on like other players who are at this point in their career and where they might go and like where that branches out and then being able to like retroactively also measure where he is in relation to at times feeling like he's been hamstrung because he's been on a team that was bad in the beginning and now seems to have a lot of like on the surface talent, but is still young and is still um, at a place where they're trying to figure out who they are. So I don't, I don't know yet how all of those factors impact his stats. Yeah, it's it's a really tricky case. Uh, if you just look at the base numbers, so according to VORP, which is a stat they have at Basketball Reference that measures value over replacement player, another acronym, Wiggins has one of the worst ratings in the NBA of any player in the whole league this season. And even if you look at real plus minus, which is uh, another kind of variant of the plus minus mold that ESPN puts out, uh, he ranks 78th out of 80 small forwards in all of the NBA. Yeah. So that is kind of, you know, those are not good numbers. But like you said, at age 21, there are players in the past, you know, that have perhaps put up numbers, perhaps not that bad, but still not great numbers that ended up becoming decent players. And Dean Demacus, the guy that wrote the original story about Wiggins, notes that DeMar DeRozan is an example of this, where DeMar DeRozan started out with pretty similar numbers to what Wiggins has in the advanced stats sphere. And maybe that was a little bit before advanced stats got as much traction. Rudy Gay, I should say, is another player that kind of fits that mold, too. Uh, And then they ended up maturing into players that were above average at their peaks. Uh, and, and in the case of DeMar DeRozan, one of the leading scorers in all of basketball this year, kind of having a breakout year. And we can talk about his stats, too, where I don't think that his advanced numbers ever kind there was always this lag, right, between, you know, even when he was young, people thought, oh, he, he the conventional wisdom was that he is a pretty good prospect and his advanced numbers were terrible. Now that he's scoring almost 30 points a game, his advanced numbers are now merely like, Pretty, you know, like, okay, good, half decent. Uh, So there's always that lag. And one of my questions about Wiggins also is going to be, does that mean that he is just always kind of destined to have that lag? And if he does, if he tops out as a Rudy Gay or DeMar DeRozan, does that make him a disappointment relative to some of the talk that we heard before he was drafted when he went to Kansas that he was going to be the next LeBron potentially? The case with Andrew Wiggins, to me, feels like one of those cases where if you're parachuting in to consuming Andrew Wiggins, you probably think he's lighting the world on fire. And if you're actually watching a Timberwolves game and you have like the season pass and you're watching them all the time, then I think you're perhaps picking up more on how he's flawed in certain areas. And even though if you're just casually observing him, you think he's passing whatever, like athleticism, scoring, all the things we want out of basketball. Then there, you d- you drill down into it, and you're like, why is he always, you know, why is he not accumulating more numbers on the defensive end and 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 separate sort of um, spheres in the basketball metrics? But to me, the upside in the end on Andrew Wiggins has to be at this point that I think a lot of his lack of value is coming on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, which I- which we always tell ourselves like. Okay, well, his coach, Tom Thibodeau, like should be somebody who over the next few years changes that because that should be a matter of effort to some degree. Yeah. And and, uh, first of all, totally agree on on the matter of effort and also, you know, the effect of coaching on a player that has 
if you just use your visceral view, your squint test, whatever we want to call We're it. We're calling it squint. I don't squint. know why you keep the visceral view. Was that your favorite? I don't know. It's okay. just stuck with me. The alliteration really, uh, really spoke to me. But, uh, you know. I, I this like review those. Yeah, you're right. It's you don't have to explain it as much. Well, we we still. By the way, also we're still accepting new uh, suggestions, yes. right? If you want to uh, suggest, right? I mean, we got a message from a listener named Jeffrey Eklund in the past week where he said that uh, it should be another backronym, uh, opinion based visual index often user-specific or obvious. So, you know, that's another option. We're accepting new options all the time. But going back to Wiggins, uh, I should say defense is an area that we also, in advanced stats, are not necessarily uh, able to properly quantify as or, or at least with as much accuracy as we'd like uh, on the offensive side of the ball. And so maybe we have less confidence that he is indeed underperforming on that end, uh, first and foremost. And then also, if you look at some of his physical tools and, you know, the athleticism and the length and things like that, you would think he should be better defensively. And maybe that is something that he can potentially grow into. Uh, But at the other end of the floor, I just keep getting hung up on the comparisons to someone like a Rudy Gay, where, you know, sharing a lot of those hallmarks of scoring a lot and having a high usage rate, but perhaps not having a really high efficiency. And then coupling that with things like really low assist rate, really low offensive rebound rate. So it's almost like a test case in how much do we believe in scoring versus how much do we believe in the value of almost everything else. Like if a player is doing a lot of scoring, uh, is it possible for them to offset the absence of a lot of, uh, you know, almost every other category uh, in terms of being at least average in those. Uh, Wiggins is probably below average in almost all of the non-scoring categories. You know who pops to mind as the complete inverse of Andrew Wiggins <laughs> is Andre Iguodala. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was always, it always stuck in my mind when covering Andre Iguodala for, for the Philadelphia Inquirer when he made the world championship team and this was like maybe five or six years ago and it seemed surprising because uh, the list of people on that team at that time and he was one of the guys who maybe wasn't first second team NBA all-star and I remember talking to him about it and such a simple phrase and it's such a cliche phrase but he's like around the NBA like game recognizes game and I think by that he meant the same thing anybody feels when they play pick up ball with somebody is like there are times when you just you know you want somebody on your team, and it became clear that Andre Iguodala was one of those guys around the NBA. And so my concern for about Andrew Wiggins is that even though he's young and certain things he can get better at, if he is one of those guys, the inverse of an Andre Iguodala, where you kind of know in your in your heart and in your gut, like other NBA players, like you know, dude is always on Sports Center, but. He's not the kind of guy who's going to like increase the team's win percentage and make everyone around him better. Like that's that's really not that that's not a basketball skill that you can necessarily get in the gym and like train out of yourself. Right. Uh, and and maybe some of it comes down to refining some of those non-scoring aspects. But I also think, you know, to your point about Iguodala, maybe do you think that there's something there where an Iguodala needs a Wiggins and a Wiggins needs an Iguodala? They're like, like little puzzle both, pieces. Right, exactly. Like if we, we always talk about team building and we kind of glorify the idea of finding a lineup that functions more than the sum of its parts. And some of that is you have everyone filling a role and whatever one player's shortcomings are, you can insert someone that kind of covers those and vice versa. So maybe it, you know, if you have a player like LeBron James, he is all the puzzle pieces. <laughs> like he, he can fit into any puzzle piece. He's a shape shifting puzzle. Piece. Right. He's a shape shifting <laughs> puzzle piece. And so uh, it's, it's not really a matter of kind of figuring out what the right mix is for him. He will fit into any mix. It's just a matter of adding up talent around him and then making Making that work. I like that. If we're going to go with the the puzzle analogy, <laughs> even though you've got to fit different shapes together, I think you always your hope is that the puzzle piece that Andrew Wiggins is isn't so thin, 
And right. like, because when you want to pick up that puzzle, you don't want the certain pieces. Yeah, they fit the right. And like, supposedly, you know, you're, he was your scorer and he was like your, your volume, you know, offensive player. And yet he couldn't even like hold firm with the other puzzle pieces because he wasn't doing the small amount of the other things in an efficient way, like a different puzzle piece in his shape would. And by like, it's kind of like in the same vein as like a Monta Ellis where you'd always talk and I, I, I know there were times when stats sort of reinforced that he actually was a good puzzle piece. but Right. For there, the most part, though, right. he is kind of fitting that uh, or he used to fit that same dynamic. Right. And so you're like, all right, Andrew Wiggins is your, your volume guy, your scorer guy. But you also want that puzzle piece to not be thin. And you want it to like at least bulk up and, and do some like weightlifting in other, other categories. And maybe uh, you want that puzzle piece to be less expensive or maybe deliver more bang for the buck. I know Wiggins right now makes a pretty reasonable salary, $6 million a year, but you can bet that if and when he does hit free agency and he can point to that 22 points per game average, that traditionally has been one of the biggest, if not the biggest driving forces of player salaries in the past uh, has just been pure scoring ability. So you could bet that the inverse of Wiggins is not going to be able to command as high of a salary as Wiggins himself. And maybe that also, in a salary-capped league, throws off the dynamic of your your puzzle piece. He's a heavy puzzle piece because of the salary, too. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's hard to know, like, it's hard to know how much we should value just, like, pure scores anymore. It, it's hard to say, well, because my gut reaction was to say, well, and of course, like, role players are a dime a dozen but like is that true like the the kind of swiss army knife role player of andre Godala like is actually not a dime a dozen is actually perhaps more of a rare commodity at some point in in the nba perhaps it will get to a tipping point than just a volume scorer Right, yeah, and and maybe things moving in that direction as we kind of have front offices embrace statistics more and kind of advanced metrics might end up sort of working against someone like Wiggins where if he had come into the league in the 1980s or something, he would have been Dominique Wilkins or so, you know someone yeah. like Bernard King. Uh, and and uh, there was somebody that did an analysis, it may have been Ben Dietrich, uh, that talked about his game in relation to those high-scoring kind of small forward type from the 80s and said that, you know, a lot of that kind of matches, uh, even if you look at, you know, the the squint test, if we will, <laughs> I'm having so much trouble kind of working that in. I so want to say eye test. Or just say visceral view. Because or it's, visceral view. It you know. slides in there easier. Yeah, you know, we're, we're still rethinking things on that. But uh, yeah, it, you know, it could be that a player of that particular ilk has in the case of Andrew Wiggins he's coming along at maybe the worst possible time to be that type of player and and maybe that also causes us to sort of look at that type of player differently in future editions when they come out of college or come out of high school anyway i think we're going to leave it there but i'm sure you know Wiggins and this debate about advanced stats versus the squint test the visceral view uh is not going to end anytime soon and we'll probably revisit it at some point in the not so distant future on to the MLS, and the Seattle Sounders claimed their first MLS Cup title on Saturday, defeating Toronto FC on penalty kicks 5-4 to four after extra time finished scoreless. And here to talk about it is Washington Post soccer writer Stephen Goff. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Great to join you today. Okay, so let's start with the obvious. Uh, a 0-0 tie, is that a kind of what the game, what the league wanted to sort of show in their showcase? Uh, what, was it really as kind of boring or, or, or uneventful as we think of when we think of a 0-0 tie? No, nah, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it boring. It was riveting in the sense that, you know, there was a trophy at stake. And, uh, you know, neither team was budging, particularly Seattle. Toronto was the better side. Um, in extra time, there was one of the, the great saves of uh, I've ever seen at any level, you know, uh, domestically or internationally by the Seattle keeper. So, you know, when you talk about 0-0, yeah, of course you want to see some scoring. Um, but, I mean, you think about it, what are the best Major League Baseball playoff games? The one nothing games, the one one games, the two one games, where there's a constant state state of tension um, and apprehension and anxiety. I mean, those are the ones that that people seem to, uh, you know, maybe not joy, but remember the most. 
Uh, and so that's the nature of soccer. You know, games are close and they're often low scoring. So, it, you know, there are bad 0-0 games and there are good 0-0 games. Uh, this one probably fell somewhere in between and, and with a trophy at stake, uh, you know, I, I think it held its audience probably a little better than, uh, you know, a regular season game without any goals. Right. It feels like having um, zero zero ties in baseball seems ex- not ties, excuse me, zero zero games in baseball that have to go to extra innings um, seem mm-hmm. more palatable to the American taste buds because we all understand the game so intricately. Whereas sometimes when people are parachuting into soccer because they don't understand a lot of times of the nuance, and the intricacy, like it's lost. And so some of the like the non scoring seems boring. Whereas if you've watched a lot of soccer, then you can see the twists and turns, even if they don't end in goals. And I think we're still like the casual audience is still trying to figure out what that looks like. Sure. And, you know, it's a good example with baseball. Um, You know, you as an American who grew up with baseball, perhaps understand what it means if it's a scoreless game and you have the leadoff man on, you know, do you sacrifice them over? Do you let the guy swing away? Does the you know does a team make a pitching change from a left-hander to right-hander? So there's all these little things in baseball that you know in a low score in a close game it makes sense to you. Uh, you know, in, in soccer it can be the same thing. Someone in soccer will you know maybe make the argument, okay, it's zero-zero, we're the better team. You know, uh, do we you know do we put an extra attacker on there to try to break down? Uh, the resistance that we're facing, uh, you know, do we save a player for for extra time? Um, you know, do we worry about going to penalty kicks where you know maybe the other goalkeeper has a greater history um, of, of stopping those those shots? So yeah, sure. There's there's the intricacies and the nuances of games that you know uh, casual viewers of baseball or soccer might be you know turned off by. So if this was kind of the the equivalent of a pitcher's duel, uh, it's it's kind of not unusual, right? Like I read a piece that you wrote, Stephen, that MLS had it's a, a lot of tied matches this season, the most since 2011, right? Yeah, I, I can't remember when I wrote that, but at the time, the the number of draws was was up, um, and people were people were certainly noticing. So it's kind of fitting that the championship sort of also came down to that kind of a, a tight game. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, what happens is in soccer worldwide um, is championship matches typically are are tight, uh, are not very entertaining, are grinding affairs. I mean, we've seen it in the past two World Cups, uh, you know, where they've had to go, um, you know, into uh, into extra time to decide the championship. You know, Germany won it in 2014 in Brazil and. Uh, Spain in 2010 and South Africa, uh, you know, the, um, you know, MLS Cup final was decided that way. Um, you know, the, the college soccer championship the other day between Stanford and Wake Forest went to penalty kicks. It's just kind of the nature of finals where uh, whatever it is, whether you have two teams on, on equal standing or fatigue uh, or just the fear of making a mistake, uh, where you tend to play more defensively, uh, but it is an issue. I mean, particularly in the regular season, if you're getting a lot of draws, you know, it's hard for people to get excited about coming out when, you know, teams are just kind of settling for that one point um, and, and moving on to the next game. So if we take a broad view on where the MLS is, having been founded in 93, but then starting in 96, um, obviously it's really young in comparison to other sports leagues, because I hear this argument a lot about, say, like the WNBA or, you know, women's college basketball, when you try and relate it to how the NBA is doing or how men's college basketball is, you have to take into account its position historically. So if we take that into account for MLS, like, where do you think it is comparative to where other professional leagues were at the same time in their evolution? That's a good question. It's a tough one to answer because, um, you know, Every country in the world has a soccer league. Uh, you know, some are better than others, obviously. But imagine that. Imagine if every country in the world had a, you know, a professional basketball league and what it would be like to jump into that pool and compete for players, compete for attention. Um, 
So that's what MLS has done. You know, I mean, not only are they competing um, with other, you know, U.S. sports for attention, they're, they're competing with other soccer leagues. You know, the NBA, the NHL, NFL, baseball, they don't have to do that, um, except for really the college sports. Um, they have no competition. So MLS, uh, you, you know, faces an enormous challenge. Um, where they stand, uh, you know, if you want to put them on a global ranking, uh, you know, again, that's difficult, but they're probably the, maybe the 12th or 15th best league in the world, um, you know, and this is among, you know, hundreds of leagues. So um, they've made nice progress. This is very intentional, the way they've gone about with slow growth, with tempering their spending, you know, this is this was the plan from the start, and it's it's working pretty well. Um, it's still not at the quality of the Premier League or the Bundesliga or those leagues. Uh, that's a matter of money. You know, the best players in the world uh, are not going to come here in their prime if they can make five, ten times more money um, overseas. So, so that's the challenge. Um, certainly the history and longevity of the league plays a part in that. But at the end of the day, it's about money. You know, if some team offered here, offered Lionel Messi, you know, $30 million a year to play soccer, you know, he might come here. Um, as simple as that. But MLS, you know, is very careful about its money. It's a very conservative approach, and, and they've, they've built, up, uh, built it up pretty well. Um, the one – comparison I like to make, which I think is fair and, and, and resonates maybe with an American audience, is MLS is kind of, if you put them in college basketball terms, they're a mid-major. They have a loyal following among their, uh, you know, local audience. Um, they are capable of beating teams above them. Um, there's, you know, there's a certain innocence to it um, compared to the you know, the, the major programs. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're, they're somewhere in, in between. And I think that goes for American soccer in general as well. Okay, so if we, but if we stick with that metaphor that, like, the MLS is a mid-major, the one thing mm-hmm. that mid-majors in the NCAA have going for them is that they can always, at the end of the season, test themselves in the NCAA tournament against yeah. the top teams. And so I'm wondering what the next step is for the MLS, um, like what drives what? Does the MLS need to continue to stay steady so that it can increase revenue and then get some more big names, and then that will drive perhaps inclusion in you know some of these you know UEFA type Champions League events? Because I think it feels like what's going to at least increase the visibility and the interest um, to kind of blow that open would be inclusion in some sort of international. Uh, tournament so that you can actually sure. test your medal in like a meaningful game against mm-hmm. some of these top European clubs. Yeah. I mean, that's the challenge with MLS is that all competitions are, are almost all competitions uh, among pro teams, not world cup and, and things like that. But the, the clubs um, are, are based on continents. Um, you know, you have the UEFA champions league. Those are your for European teams. There's, uh, there's an Asian Champions League. There's a Champions League here, too, as well, uh, among, you know, CONCACAF teams, North America, Central America. And, uh, you know, the first step MLS would need to take to kind of prove itself is to win, you know, the, the North American, Central American, Caribbean Championship. And they, and they just don't because the Mexican teams uh, are stronger. They ha- they're more well-financed. Uh, they have greater history. Um, so MLS teams have come close to winning it, regional titles, um, Champions League titles, uh, but they've fallen short. So, uh, you know, that's the first hurdle for them. If they could get on par with the Mexican League, um, which is pretty, which is pretty darn good, um, then they could start to have a discussion about where they stand um, compared to, you know, the, the European side. And Stephen, you mentioned the the money issue and kind of if a team did pay Messi or whomever uh, a bunch of money to have them play. Uh, is there something about the nature of soccer, though, that also, you know, since there's 11 players on the pitch and uh, it, it seems like one player can't really 
dominate to the extent that, say, if you sign like a really good recruit and you are a mid-major in college basketball, you suddenly vault up into the top ranks of of uh, the NCAA. Maybe adding even like a messy to an M- an average MLS team probably wouldn't be enough to kind of elevate them to the same level as even kind of average teams in Europe. Am I right in that assessment? Uh, somewhat. I mean, it, you know, certainly with 11 players on the field uh, for the entire game with only three substitutes, yeah. I mean, one guy can only do so much. Um, if a top – I mean, top players have come here. I mean, m- many of them later in their career and have had a uh, profound impact. I mean, you, you see it uh, You see it now. The, there's a, a, an Italian player in Toronto who's – uh, you know, international caliber. He was the MVP last year, Sebastian Javinko, and he was, uh, you know, one of the top players again this year. I mean, with him on the field, uh, Toronto is championship caliber. Without him, uh, not quite as good. So, yeah, that's part of it. I mean, soccer in nature is different. It's not like the NFL, where if you have a uh, first class quarterback, it changes almost everything uh, in baseball where you have a top-line starting pitcher, um, that that would change your fortune because, you know, the game is really uh, in large part in control uh, by that one person. So, yeah, soccer is different. But, you know, what you want to do is, and MLS has been trying, is, is uh, attracting players that, you know, maybe they can't afford, like Ronaldo and Messi and, um, you know, guys for Real Madrid and Barcelona. But, you know, it's a big soccer world out there, and you can get an Argentine player who, um, you know, might be common, uh, you know, among Argentine players, but here, you know, he, he makes a difference, and he's not going to cost you an enormous amount of money. Um, so there's that balance. Um, there have been players that have come over recently, you know, guys like Beckham and Didier Drogba, Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard, you know, big names from overseas, uh, you know, later in their career who certainly have a marketing impact. Um, and, you know, it's hit or miss on the field. Some, some guys lift their teams, um, others not so much. Okay, Stephen, thanks. We're going to leave it there. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. And now it's time for that favorite part of the show in which we bring forth a significant digit, a telling number from the week in sports, and uh, I'm going to self-sig dig this week with what Chad is that? away. That's an interesting phrase, self-sig dig. Yeah, it's uh, it's just sort of like calling my own number. We talked about Russell uh, Westbrook, you know, calling his own number and scoring so as point you, guard. The visual right now is you grabbed the rebound. You waved everyone else down for right, exactly. and you pushed them all the way to the corners said, and you ran a low one four. Get the hell out of my way. <laughs> I'm gonna take this to the basket. Okay. And then of course get get uh blocked horribly at the rim. So <laughs> anyway, our sig dig this week is the number five. That is the number of pledges that Alabama and the Crimson Tide have from players ranked number one at their respective positions in terms of the recruiting rankings. You mean commits? Yes. Pledges. Ple- pledges. So, like, commitments. Like commitments, for, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, pledges, I'm like, are they rushing a, like, yeah, right. a fraternity? <laughs> they're, they're joining the fraternity of future uh, NFL players produced by Alabama. <laughs> but we talked about Alabama in a recent episode as having uh, the highest rating in our little ELO rating system of any team ever. And so, you know, of course, uh, that team doesn't need any extra help, but they're adding these number one ranked players. They have the number one JUCO defensive end. They have the number one running back, the number one athlete that's the term for you know could be a quarterback could be you know any number of positions they have the number one dual threat quarterback and of course the number one juco offensive tackle so it just seems like alabama uh in in college football you know they've dominated it so thoroughly and it's this is one of the reasons why it's just never enough for nick saban he needs to keep adding this is a man that said i think after he he was mad that they had won the national championship one time uh because he it meant that he wouldn't be able to go out and do recruiting. recruiting it interrupted his recruiting and it just was a hassle for him to win that championship uh but i guess you know that's the type of mentality you have to have. And it also causes me to wonder, 
you know, what chance do other teams that are kind of vying for this talent have uh, on the field if they can't really secure, you know, players of that caliber and they're all going and being amassed in, in Alabama? We don't really talk about, quote unquote, super teams as much in college football as we do maybe in the NBA when Kevin Durant joins uh, the Warriors. But this seems a little bit like that, except it happens all like every year in college football. Yeah, we're not used to thinking about football as a sport that one team could really build this kind of dynasty because there's just so much football talent and 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 like high school like strength and and power and athleticism and we're like okay, well, how in football can you be so dominant when there's like just the amount of recruits that that exists? But at some point there's got to be like a runaway tipping point for Alabama where they're getting so much more coverage and they're winning so much that you know, TK percentage of high level recruits go there, which makes it just that much harder to stop them. The next, like, it's like the UConn women's basketball model almost. But I, I don't think it's, I mean, even though I say that, like, I don't think it's really as possible in football, even though you just the sig dig as, <laughs> as five of these top level recruits just because of the lack of, you know, impact that each specific player can make and the other football variables. Right. And every kind of dynasty even in the moment, as dominant as they seem. And we should also say Alabama, before we kind of preemptively crown them, yeah. they still have to play Washington on New Year's Eve. Oh, they Eve. haven't won the national title yet? They haven't won yet? the championship oh, that's yet. Weird. My goodness, oh, yes. I thought they won uh, it. And, and, and even if they uh, beat the Huskies, they still have to play another game after that. Uh, that, you know, many similar-seeming dynasties in which we were saying at the time, oh, it doesn't seem like they'll ever fall, end up eventually falling, and that probably will happen to Alabama as well. But we like still can exactly like Rome or perhaps the uh, early 2000s Miami Hurricanes. Either either one that you want to kind of compare uh, is is an apt comparison. But uh, yeah, yeah, it, it is kind of the nature of college sports to to wonder about these things and to think about the impact that so many you know different factors have on recruiting. Okay, so that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks to Kate Fagan as always. Thanks, Neil. What what job am I flying back to in Boulder? Uh, you were, uh, if I'm going back to the beginning of my script frantically, you were our <laughs> Boulder Bureau Chief in Charge of Ongoing Colorado co- uh, Football Coverage, okay, which I is a backronym get, that makes no sense. I got to get back to that. An unpronounceable backronym. I got a flight to Denver yeah, tonight. Got to gotta fly there instantly. Mm-hmm. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Our podcast, Nick Saban, is Jody Avergan. I don't know if he'll like that uh, moniker, but we gave it to him anyway. We also receive production assistance from Jorge Estrada. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps that you like to hear your podcast through. We're also on iTunes, so subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. And be sure to rate and review the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song, as always, by Mystery Mansion. I'm Neil Payne. Talk to you next time.